Well, first off, I want to wish all of our moms a happy Mother's Day. All right? It's good to have you here this morning representing the gift of grace that you are, that God has given to the family. Um, you're a blessing to all of us and to the world itself. It's a common grace to the world, but a special grace to those who are believers to have you here with us. It seems that God, God uses moms to uh, do amazing things. They uh, help control chaos and relieve distress all the time. That's kind of sort of like their job description every day, isn't it? And I, I want you to recognize that, though, as what it is. It's a gift of God's grace. And it's, it's a means of grace that we all rejoice in every day of our lives as offspring of moms, right? And we need moms in a world that we live in, and we need moms to uh, help control the chaos and the distress that we deal with on a regular basis. We live in a world, obviously, right now that seems to be turned upside down by the chaos and distress all around us. And it's good to know that at this time that God, number one, is still on the throne. He's reigning over all things, and he also reigns through means of grace like moms that he gives to us. And we rejoice in that this morning. He's, he's also working through all things to glorify his name, even those uh, times that moms feel like that they're not getting anywhere. You are certainly being an example of grace to all of us, and we thank you for that. But in the midst of our chaos, we need to keep something in mind. And moms need to keep this in mind when they feel distressed as well. God has a divine plan for our chaos. God is working out a divine design for our distress. And over the last few weeks, this has been on my mind a lot. And uh, we can't help but think about that at this time. And I've been reminded time and again to go back to a passage of Scripture that I love, that I've preached about multiple times before. I'm going to preach about it again today because I find it comforting. I find it instructive. I find it edifying. And I also find it sanctifying. And that is a psalm that I want to focus our attention on this morning. It's Psalm 116. And I, I go there over and over again at times like this. And I want to bring you back there with me this morning. Before I, I get to the psalm, I'm going to give some introduction in a moment, but before I even do that, I want to tell you what this psalm always brings to my mind when I read it. It brings to mind a song that we're going to sing later. A few lines from this song I think are appropriate at this time to be reminded of before we enter into this study of God's Word. And the old song is, How Firm a Foundation. I'm going to read it to you to spare you hearing me sing it to you, okay? Because that would be more than uh, you could take at this time. That would be distressing to the max, but... I'll read it. Hopefully that will comfort your hearts. Listen to this passage, this section of this psalm, of this song, rather. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not... I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, 
I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. What an amazing, what an amazing summary of God's character and his kindness to us in Christ. He has secured us in times of distress and chaos. And he even has a way to work those things together for our good and his praise. And we thank him for this firm foundation that we have in him. We have a firm foundation in a sovereign God who is able to take things that seem out of order and put order to them and work them for our good and his praise. And he tells us here in this this uh, hymn, this old hymn writer writes this, that nothing can shake us from his omnipotent, all powerful, almighty hand. Nothing. Do you really believe that this morning? Do you believe that when you're going through distress and trials and chaos? Nothing can shake you from his hand. Not even a global pandemic can shake you from his hand. Not even physical trials and sickness can shake you from his hand. Not even emotional distress and anxiety can shake you from his hand. All of which are working together in his divine design for your good as a believer and his glory. We need to keep that in mind and keep that in your minds as we go to Psalm 116 in a few moments, because he's telling us, as the the psalmist writes, that the deepest distresses and trials that we face, he's reminding us that these are designed by God for our good and they'll bring God praise when we respond to them according to his character and his word that he reveals to us in Scripture. If you summed up Psalm 116, the first nine verses, here's how I would sum it up. This is a reminder of God's good and divine design for distress in the believer's life. And there's comfort in that, knowing that the one who is designing it is gracious, righteous, and merciful. And that's what the psalmist declares to us this morning. Church, I believe that in Psalm 116, God gives us a glimpse into Things that we can't necessarily see easily. He gives us a glimpse into his divine design for distress. And he does it through the life of King David, whom I believe this psalm is actually referring to. Me and John Calvin think that anyway. So I'm in fairly good company there. I want to remind you a little bit about the, the narrative here and what's going on, but to give you some history. But before I do that, um, just keep in mind that this, this is a historic moment in time that we're reading about. This man was really suffering the way he describes his suffering here. This is real distress. This could have been written by any one of you if you're going through some deep, dark valley in your life. And so as you read this, I hope that it reads you. I hope that God speaks to you through this as we look at this and we consider the background of this psalm to help us understand what he's crying out in both faith and hope, as we read through the passage together. The background of the psalm, like I said, comes likely from King David's struggle with his son Absalom. Absalom had recently betrayed his father and basically was trying to take the throne away from David through conniving and conspiracy. Now, as a father, that's most, the most heartbreaking thing you could ever imagine, to see your son betray you. And as a mom, you would understand that, too. But Absalom had had previously went through a situation that changed his mind toward his dad. He had a had a bitter spirit toward his dad because his dad did not come alongside and vindicate his 
daughter, Tamar, when she was violated by their other brother. And, and Absalom, he took things into his own hands, but eventually he was ran out of this area and he was ran out into the wilderness and he fled the kingdom to, to remain hidden some time away from David, away from the people of Israel. And during that time, this is not where absence makes the heart grow fonder. That's not what happened here. Absence made the heart grow more bitter. When Absalom was out hiding, all he could do is plot against his father. Bitterness grew. The root of bitterness grew in his heart because he didn't think his dad was a righteous king. He didn't act well enough to do what was needed to help his sister. And during that time, that pride-filled heart of his was driven to think of ways to go against his father. And so he planned, there's a way to do this that's going to be making me look innocent and allowing me to take the throne at some point. And so what he did was he conspired with other people close to David, David's closest friends and confidants. And they slowly tried to erode away David's authority. This is the undermining effect of bitterness. And it tried to basically find a place where he could destroy all credibility for his father and throw him out. And then Absalom could take his place. This, I think, is what's going on in the heart of the psalmist as he writes this this morning. Just think about this. King David, the one anointed by God to be the king of Israel. King David now fleeing from his offspring, fleeing from his child who wants to take his throne. And Absalom is not satisfied with taking the throne. He wants to take his dad's life. He wants to kill him. He wants to take ultimate authority over the kingdom. And you think about David's situation. David had now, who was the king at one time, now he's a fugitive. He's a fugitive in his own kingdom. He's a broken man with no home. His family is broken from him. He's now destitute and he's hiding in a cave. I think that's the context of this psalm. He's hiding in a cave. And, and the way he describes this, this time, of, time of hiding is, is like he's an animal being pursued by a captor or one who would want to slaughter him. But it's his son that he's referring to. David is literally crying out in fear in this psalm. This is not hyperbole. He is really afraid his son is going to kill him. This is a touching psalm when you think about the context. But what you need to understand is, though this son trying to kill the father was the plot that's going on that drives him into this situation, you must understand there's a greater father who's taking care of King David. God was lovingly using this distress in David's life to make him a righteous king over Israel. He used this distress to remind David that his strength as the king and his peace in life doesn't depend upon his own prestige or his own power or his own heritage, but on God's mercy and grace alone. And saints, that's what distress will do in your life as well, if you allow it. It will expose your idols and it will tell you you can't trust in yourself. You must turn to God for mercy and grace in your time of need. Because God is eager to hear your cry for mercy. We'll see that when we read the text. I think this psalm illustrates to us how, how God mercifully and graciously uses distress in our life for our good and for his praise. It also reminds us that. As you finish the, the psalm, 
We don't have to grow weary in the midst of our distress. We have one who will comfort us. We have one who abides with us in our distress, who is sanctifying that distress for our good and his praise. He will not allow the floods to overcome us or the fire to consume. He'll burn off the dross and make us more like his son through the distress. Distresses will come into our lives in this broken world, will it not? If you live long enough, you will suffer, says D.A. Carson. And he's right. Distress will come in this broken world because there is sorrow all around us. There is pain all around us because of sin. There is anxiety in this world because of sin and the fallen condition of man. In this world, understand, distress reigns on the just and the unjust alike. Christians are not exempt from distress and anxiety. But God has a divine plan for it that's good. If we will open our eyes to see it. In Psalm 116, I think we're assured that there's, a, there's an old song that William Cooper wrote that behind every frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. God is behind it. God is at work in it. God is doing something good through it. And it assures us when we look at this psalm that God is sovereign and God is good in all his ways, no matter what they look like to us at the moment. Our circumstances do not dictate God's character. God's character changes our circumstance. And we rest in it. I think that's the the heart of the truth here that's in David's mind when he sings this song. And I want to read to you now the song. It's Psalm 116, 1 to 9. Listen as I read. Remember the context. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he's inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol or the grave laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. The Lord delivers in the next verse. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the the simple When I was brought low or humbled, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. This psalm is full of faith. It's full of hope. It's full of praise. God is showing us amazing things about his character in our time of need through this and his purpose for our time of need in this. I think that in verses one to nine, David shows us God's design for distress in our life is meant to number one. It's meant to humble, produce humble dependence on God's mercy in the first four verses. Number two. I think that his design for our distress is meant to produce joyful reverence for God's grace in verses five to nine. We'll try to look at these this morning. In one to four, we can see that God's design for distress in our life is meant to produce, I think, humble confidence in God's mercy. Him not giving us what we deserve. We have confidence that he hasn't given us what we deserve already or we wouldn't be able to pray this prayer. We would have received his wrath. But the very fact that that he could start off in this beautiful, simple, 
adoration song saying, I love the Lord. That is a mercy. It's a mercy for us to be able to say that. I love the Lord. And here's why. Because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. David is humbly overwhelmed that that God still hears the pleas of this needy sinner. Think about David's testimony. He commits adultery or rapes Bathsheba. Then he murders Uriah. And God still blesses him as the king. I mean, he knows something is not right with this picture. I, I must be mercied beyond all men. I deserve wrath. David, David had a faith in God that was unsurpassed in this. David had to trust in his greater son that would come through his lineage, who would receive that death penalty instead of David in the future. He trusted in Jesus who would take his place, pay that penalty for the crimes he committed so he could receive mercy and cry out, I love the Lord because he hears me. He hears me when I cry for mercy. Now, this is a king. A king doesn't cry for mercy to anyone until he encounters a greater king. And he falls on his face before God. I need mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. And you hear me when I cry for mercy. And I love you for this because you first loved me in Christ. By faith, he looked forward to the one who would take his place. And he was overwhelmed by God's tender mercy that that fell on this failing, proud king. This is what's going on in this context. David was was filled with pride. He was the king. He could do no wrong, even though he had done many wrongs. He kept coming back to that place of being praised and adored to the point that he needed to be humbled. And God sent his son to humble him. That's hard to take. When David recognizes that I'm not in control, he's humbled to the core and he falls before God. We should all feel that way before God. when We understand how much mercy we receive from him every day. The very fact that we can come before a great and holy God and ask anything is absolutely astounding. We do not deserve his presence. We do not deserve to come into his presence. But this psalm tells us that even in our greatest failings, even in our faltering and our sin, we can still cry out for mercy and the Lord hears us because he is gracious and full of loving kindness. He hears the pleas of failing saints. That's good to know, is it not? He hears us because he is a God of mercy. Does this, does this still amaze you today? I mean, do you still find yourself in awe when you actually can sit down and talk to the omnipotent God of the universe who is holy and without blame and enter his presence without fear? This should just cause you to fall on your face in absolute shock and awe. And sadly, it doesn't because we become familiar with God. But saints, we can never become so familiar with God that we can approach him without fear and awe. He is a God of mercy, but he's also a God of justice. When you think about what we deserve, we should come before him like David, humbly Amazed that he hears our pleas for mercy at times of distress and anxiety. I think it's good for us to remember this. It's good to remember that God hears us 
And listen, saints, sometimes if when you're distressed to the to the point that you don't even know what to say, I want you to know this. Even when you have nothing to offer to God in prayer, when your heart is bowed low, seeking mercy and all you can give is groans. He hears you. He hears your cry for mercy. Matter of fact, the Holy Spirit is bringing that out of your heart. Saints, he even hears when you cannot cry words of praise or words of thanks or words of seeking wisdom and grace. He can hear the tears flowing down your face in your time of need. And he will respond to the broken and contrite heart that comes to him for mercy. He hears us. He hears us. Go with me to to Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul reminds us of why he hears us in two different ways here in Romans 8. Romans 8, 26 to begin with. He hears us because his spirit is within us. His spirit works to comfort us and sanctify us. It says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, that is the human spirit. But the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe, verse 29, when it comes to praying and pleading with God for mercy in your time of need? Do you know the Holy Spirit is at work through your distress to make you come before the throne and seek grace and mercy in your time of need? And here's why. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Saints, keep this in mind. The reason we can come to him for mercy in our time of need and the spirit is at work in us bringing about all these changes in our hearts is because we no longer are condemned. We're blood bought children. We belong to God. We are his because of Jesus. That's why we have no condemnation and no fear to cry out when we blow it. Even when our sins are self inflicted and our distress comes because of our sin. I want you to know something. We can come to a God who still hears us because of Jesus, who never sinned in our place, who was able to intercede for us at the cross and make a way for sinners to come before him without fear or shame. So even if you are a self-inflicted, distressed sinner this morning, there's hope for you when you cry out in mercy to God. There's forgiveness There's cleansing, there's sanctification. And weary saints, be assured that that God still hears your pleas even when you blow it. He still hears your pleas when you ask for help, when you seek Him. He will not waste that suffering moment in your life. He hears you when you humble yourself before Him and recognize He is at work in this suffering to sanctify my life, to make me more like Christ. 
to conform me to his image. See, suffering is, is a sanctifying gift designed by God. I think we should know that, but I'll remind you of that. I don't like that. Do you like that? I don't like it. But if God sends it, it's good. Whether I like it or not. Because God is good. It's a, suffer, it's a sanctifying gift designed by God in order to humble us and then turn our hearts back to the only one that can actually change our condition and change our situation. The only one we can rely on when our strengths fail and our comforts fail, and they always do. Isaiah 66, 66 reminds us of that. It says that God answers those who are humble and contrite in spirit, those who tremble at his word. We see that happening before our very eyes in Psalm 116. Go back there with me. In 116, verse 2, David begins to turn to God, not out of just amazement that he hears him, but now out of humility because of this mercy. And he comes to God, and when he comes to God in this humbled condition, he has fresh hope imparted to him. Look at verse 2. Basically, we hear in verse 2, David explode with fresh hope. About God's mercy. He inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. He inclined his ear to me. He was brought low. He was humbled. He was brought to the point of being like a child coming to a father. And it says that God inclined his ear. And David is amazed. To incline the ear in the Hebrew idiom would mean basically like when Paul Wilson's little girl runs up to him and says, Daddy, 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 Daddy. And big Paul leans way down and condescends and comes near Genesis. He says, I hear you, baby girl. What do you need? And he listens intently to every word she says. David is absolutely astounded. The God that I deserve wrath from is now merciful toward me. And not only that, he now leans in to me in my distress, in my suffering. He cares about me. He is amazed. He says, in response to this, I'm going to call on him as long as I live. This is God's good design in this distress. Do you see it? David's distress reminds us that that God eagerly leans in to hear us in our time of need. We recognize we can't turn to anyone or anything else. God's saying, exactly, that's where I want you. Come to me, my child. I am not a distant deity. I am near the brokenhearted. Those who trust in my word. I will come near. As a matter of fact, I'll show you how near in the future. God is not a distant deity, and we know that because of Jesus. God sent his son to deliver us from eternal distress. That's how close he came. And he did it by incarnating his very mercy at the cross. I'll show you how well I listen to your cries for help. I will send my son to take your place. And on that cross, you'll see the mercy and grace of God on display for you, my child. Tell me what you need. And because of that, we continue coming to him with our needs. God doesn't get tired. Isn't that good to know? You know, I, my, listen, my nine-year-old can ask me 
something. Go, come ride a bike with me, Dad. Come ride a bike with me, Dad. Come ride a bike with me, Dad. Yeah, yeah, I will, I will. And, it, and, it, and look, I get tired. I get weary of his pleading. But isn't it good to know that God is not like me? God is patient. God is ready to hear in our time of need. He's moving us into situations to make us needy, to recognize we trust in him, not our strength, not ourselves, not our abilities. We need God. People, we are God's people. We don't belong here. We belong with him. But in the meantime, he's going to use whatever he needs to use here to make us more like Christ, to be with him for eternity and reflect his glory. So when we think about how near he comes, how he inclines himself to us, we see it displayed, obviously, at the cross. He received what we deserve. Jesus took our penalty for us. And by doing that, Jesus secured forever, eternally secured, eternally captured the attention of God the Father's ear for us whenever we cry out in times of our distress. See, God, God isn't patient with us because we're so worth being patient with. God is patient with us because of Jesus, his son, who purchased us. Because he redeemed us. He says, they are my prize. They are mine. They are to be to your praise. And therefore, he intercedes for us. And God hears us because of Christ. He captured the ear of the father for us for eternity. I think there's fresh hope given to David when he recognizes this. I think there should be fresh hope for us today when we recognize that that God will use our distress to help us recognize that we actually have full access to God's ear now through Jesus. Does that happen when you are distressed? Is, Is that your first? Is that your like default position? I'm in this condition. I'm in this situation. I can't get out. What do I do? Oh, God is gracious and merciful and righteous because of Jesus. I can trust in him. Oh, Lord, I love you because you hear my pleas for mercy. That's not our default position. Our default position is I got to get out of this. Why do all these bad things keep happening to me? What can I do to maneuver myself around to get out of this circumstance? I think David had tried that multiple times. He tried that with Absalom fleeing from him. He couldn't escape. Absalom had him cornered. and He's going to die. Now he says the only where I can only place I can go is to God. And therefore he does. Saints, we don't need to wait until we get to that point. The psalm is telling us he hears us in our time of need. Don't wait for distress. Don't wait to try to find your way out. Look to him when it comes immediately. And he will hear because he inclines his ear to those who are humble. Listen, saints, he hears us because we're not strangers any longer. We're not aliens to him. We're his blood-bought children because of Jesus. And he hears And the one who is righteous, who hears, he also cares and he also acts perfectly in it. I think I think we can understand this. Moms, you understand something. All the moms back there with babies right now, especially when when your baby, when you're in a crowd and your baby cries and you're not with that baby, you know, it's your baby. Your ears perk up, your your attention is gained. You're looking around, you're scanning, you're going to them immediately. You hear their cry for mercy. You run to them. I mean, we do that as children's parents, right? 
mean, parents are eager to help their children in their time of need when they humble themselves to call upon us. You know, I, I can send my son out to do something and he's determined to do it the other way. And when he gets into a bind, I can hear him crying, but I don't always come. Because I told him to do it the right way and he didn't listen. But when he finally gets desperate and he cries out, and says, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I did it wrong. I come. I allow that distress to work good in his life. How much more so can God do that with us? There is nothing chaotic in this world. God is in control of all things, even our distress. David is amazed by that. He is humbled by that. Look at verses three and four. He's amazed that his heavenly father is is eager to help him when he cries in humility for for mercy. In this time of distress here, basically, David's crying out, like I said earlier, like a like a hunted animal, like an animal being led to slaughter. He says, the snares of death have encompassed me. So he knows God hears him. He's rejoicing in it. He knows God comes near him. So he goes ahead and tells him, here's what's going on in my heart. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I, I, I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, what relief. He's saying, I was just destitute beyond my own ability to save myself. And then I finally did what I should have done at the beginning. I called on the name of the Lord. Do you see God's design in this? His goodness in this? This is where God wanted him to be in the first place. When he heard the plot of Absalom, he should have been here in the first place. But he didn't because of sin. So God allows distress to sanctify him. God's design for this distress was to, to humbly turn David back to God for help. And as I said, he needed that because he was a powerful, popular, strong, proud, self-reliant king. And I think we might be able to fall into some of those categories ourselves. And sometimes we need this distress to stop us from trusting in our own reliance, our own strength, our own popularity, our own power. David was accustomed to getting his way. He was accustomed to his position. He was accustomed to his his comfort, his strength that he had to, to wield rights and take away rights from people. But here in this condition, God stripped him of all those rights to show David, David, you're not the true king of Israel. I am. You better come to me. You're just one of my servants. Listen, it's important for you to, to get this, I think. Because I think sometimes we act like David. In this case, you are David. All right. You are David. And you know it. Sometimes we act like David. We think that that we can get ourselves out of any situation we're in because of our our ability, our our mind, our, our strength, our money, whatever it may be. And sometimes we have to have everything stripped away so that we see that, you know what, I can't do anything apart from God's grace and mercy. God strips away all of our comforts for our good at times. And you need to be able to rejoice in that when it happens and see God's design in it. You need to recognize distress as a gift from God the Father. It's a loving gift to his children. It's a disciplinary gift to his children. Because he loves us, he disciplines us. And it should remind you when this happens that you can turn to him for wisdom. You can turn to him for strength. Don't trust in your own. And that's what we should learn from David, I think, in this. But so many times we don't. And listen, when, when distress comes, 
when distress comes into your life, what you turn to or who you turn to in faith immediately tells me who your God is. A lot of time that God would be the God with a little G, your own self-reliance. Who do you turn to when you are in distress immediately? Do you turn to friends? Do you turn to the wisdom of the world psychology? Do you, do you turn to your own uh, ability to manipulate situations or people? Or do you humbly run to God and his means of grace? And you know what those are? Prayer. His word. The counsel of his people. Saints, when, when distress comes, it's God's design to, to use it to, to press us into choosing who or what we truly trust in. Here's why. When, when, when your heart is compressed by fear and by doubt or by God's discipline, when your heart is compressed, what you trust in most is what is being squeezed out by the pressure. When the pressure comes, the first thing you turn to, the first thing that you rejoice in or rest in, that's going to tell you what was truly in your heart. And saints, God wants that to be him alone. And he wants to use that to make us more like his son. So what do you trust in when the world falls apart around you? Where do you turn? What do you say? Well, let's examine ourselves in light of what David did and what David said when he faced distress. And he began to confess that he's powerless and needed to turn to God. Look on down there at 4B. Basically, at this point, like I said, all, all that David had in his life was lost. He's about to now lose his own life. And, and his kingly authority means nothing any longer. He can't save himself. Only God can rescue him. And this is exactly where God wants him to be. So in verse 4b there, he, he, he humbly calls upon the true king and the savior of the needy. He says, oh, Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. <laughs> Isn't it amazing to see how God uses distress to put all of your struggles in life into perspective? You know, when this virus hit, you saw a lot of idols rise up and be tore down. Distress brings out what's deep in the heart. What people cried out for most, that was their idol. But now we look at the things that we thought were so important to us. They're no longer important. They're no longer important because distress put things in perspective. We've seen a revival of people loving their families. Spending time with their children seems like that might be more important than going to a basketball game. Here in this passage, I think we see that God's design for distress is, is basically good and it's, it's sanctifying. It's, it's meant to remove our pride and draw us back to God. Distress in life has that ability. It's, it's the ability to, to show us we're incapable of saving and restoring and fixing our broken lives. So we have to turn back to God. And we see the fruit of that in verses 5 to 9. We see how he responds to this sanctifying distress in his life. And his humble heart begins to bear the fruit of God's good design in this distress. So ask yourself when we read this in a moment, ask yourself if, if this is the fruit that is evident in your life when you are under distress. Is, does this sound like me when I go through times of anxiety and despair or distress? Verse 5 says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. 
think God is producing the fruit of joyful reverence for his grace in David's heart here. You see what's happened? He, he, his life was put into perspective in his distress. And so he has to turn back to God. When he turns back to God, he says, oh, I can come to him. I can cry to him because this is what he's like. So when he's under distress, all of a sudden now the light of God's true character is shining upon him. Let me ask you something. When you go through distress, do you break out in this kind of praise? Do you break out in the comforting truths of Scripture in your heart coming out of your mouth? And maybe if we don't do that, it's because we have a low view of God's character. But we should break out in this kind of praise because the God who sends the distress, the God who brings it into our life is doing it according to his character. And his character is gracious. His character is righteous and his character is merciful. And here David is joyfully confessing that. He's confessing those attributes of God. And he does it because he knows by experience that this is what God is like. Think about Bathsheba and Uriah. He knows that God gives us what we don't deserve, his unmerited favor, his grace. And he also knows God doesn't give us what we do deserve, which is his righteous wrath. But instead, because of his greater son that would come, David cries to God, looking to this gracious God who is also merciful to sinners in need. And we can do that, too. God used David's distress, I think, to draw out this humble confession and this joyful reverence for God in his heart. That's that's the way I want to respond when trials come into my life. And I'll be honest, I don't. This is a rebuke. You guys are getting the spillover of my rebuke. All right. That's that's what you're getting. And, and I like sharing it with you because I feel like it might actually affect you, too. How do we respond when trials come in like a flood? Do we rejoice in the midst of our trials, trusting that they are meant by God to sanctify us, not overcome us? Do we rejoice because God's character tells us we can rejoice in it because he's gracious and merciful and he sent it? In times of distress, we we often focus on our hearts more than on what's really going on in God's design. We're heartbroken. We're hurting. We, we focus our hearts more on those circumstances that are affecting us than we focus on God's character that protects us, that guides us. But when we focus on God's character, we'll find what David found. God's abiding presence in the midst of suffering. When our hearts are focused on the circumstance, they're not focused on God's character in the circumstance. We need to have our hearts turned back. And David is turning our hearts back by saying, look, I don't understand the plan. I don't understand the full design. But I know this about the God who has brought this distress into my life. He is gracious. He is righteous and he is merciful. And in that I rest. And that's exactly what he's about to say in just a few moments. Look at verse six. The Lord preserves the simple. That word simple there is really a a way of speaking of the humble. When I was brought low, humbled, he saved me. The stress in David's life squeezed out humility. It squeezed out repentance. It squeezed out praises to God. That's what it should do in our hearts as well. Just think about David again. Just he's, he's the supreme leader of Israel. And then his son rises up and takes 
reigns away from him. And now he's broken. His pride is shattered. And he's, he knows he can't trust in his own strength. And he says, I'm, I'm brought low by this distress. But, but God is sovereignly working it together for my good because God is gracious and righteous and merciful. He knows that God is at work doing something good in this. He knows that he has to turn away from focusing on his heart and rest his joy in God's character at this time of distress. He must turn his heart to his sovereign deliverer. And that's what he does down in verse seven. That's where he finds rest. God used David's distress here to to remind him of God's past mercies and his future graces. And this, this distress then, when he reminded him of these things, this distress then turned into praises to God. And this is very important for us. Here in verse 7, David cries out of, out of this distressful condition. He cries out with joy because of God's character in the midst of this distress. And he says this, return, O my soul, to your rest. I mean, I am panicked. I am frightened. I am anxious. I have every possible problem you can imagine. I don't know what to do, God. I'm going to die. I'm going to lose the kingdom. God says, remember my character. Remember my design. I called you to be this king because there's a greater king coming through your line. He says, return my soul to your rest. Oh, for the Lord has dealt past tense. See, he's reminding him. He's remembering this. God has already dealt bountifully with him. For you have delivered my soul from death. David's spiritual rest here was produced from this distress because this trial refreshed his memory of God's past grace and future promises. And no doubt that David could recall those very easily at this time. He could recall the countless times that he deserved God's wrath, but was forgiven and restored instead. And he could also recall that God has given him promised grace that would come it would come through, again, the greater king that would come through David's own lineage, the Lord Jesus. That is our rest in times of distress. The distress is making us more like him. The distress brings us to him. The distress sanctifies us as we go with him through this world. Saints, by God's grace, you can sing verse 7 now. You, not just David. By God's grace, we can all rejoice here with David because our deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true king of Israel himself has came. He came to deliver us from eternal death by dying in our place. Then he rose from the dead in victory to set our souls free from sin's curse and eternal distress. We can sing verse seven and we should joyfully, reverentially when we go through times of difficulty. Church, this is good news for weary and distressed saints. It's good news because God's grace, I want you to understand it when you read the last part of this, God's grace is all sufficient grace and it's holistic grace. Not to over-spiritualize or under-spiritualize anything, but you need to understand something. He's talking about his soul, my soul, find your rest. But God looks at the man as a whole, not just a soul. He knows his physical distress, his physical weariness, his emotional weariness, and God cares about all of it. And his grace is sufficient to heal emotional and physical and spiritual struggles. David proclaims that 
He proclaims that it's not just his soul that's being delivered from distress. He's saying, look, now by God's design, my mind or my heart is at rest. I'm comforted by recalling God's grace. And then he goes further in verse 8b. He says, you've delivered my eyes from tears. God is not a distant deity. He cares about your tears. He bottles them. He holds them. He knows when you cry. You will never cry eternal tears of damnation because of Jesus. And that should cause you to rejoice. He has delivered my eyes from tears. The tears that I should cry in hell for eternity. He has already delivered me from those. Weary, weary saints. You need to remember this song when you go through times of distress. This, this song tells us if we turn our eyes on Jesus, rest in Christ, his completed work at Calvary. Those tears that we now have under sorrow and distress, they will be turned one day to tears of joy due to God's grace because of Christ. We will never cry out the cry of the damned because Jesus did in our place. He shed the tears that we should have shed. When we cry out to him, I want you to know this as you read this, by noticing he's dealing with the soul, deals with the mind, deals with the eyes. We're dealing with one who is eager to save us, eager to comfort us, eager to help us in our time of need. Look at the last part of verse 8. David goes on to say, you have delivered my feet from stumbling. Now, I find this verse extremely comforting. Uh, especially as now a believer, as I was an unbeliever, I might not have been all that comforted here, but as a believer, this is an extremely comforting verse. Especially when, when I feel overwhelmed by the world and overwhelmed by my sin, my own struggle with sin. Because I think that what he's saying here is very important to our sanctified walk. David is expressing trust in God who is merciful, who is gracious, who is righteous altogether. But in that grace, he promises that even though we stumble, we will never fall. Not finally, not completely. He has delivered my feet from stumbling eternally. I am purchased by the blood of Christ. I am secured by his love. Because my feet are now anchored at the cross with Christ. My feet are anchored by his sovereign grace. That's the same hope. You don't have to turn there. It's the same hope that we hear echoed in Jude, the last two verses. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of the glory of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Saints. Because we have been delivered through Christ at the cross from eternal distress, our feet will never stumble even when we go through suffering and even when we go through trials in this life. He will keep us and he'll even bring us to a place where there'll be no more stumbling. Look what it says in verse nine there in Psalm 116. David joyfully proclaims that he has hope in his anchored feet because he will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Now, this is astounding. This is a faithful prayer, a faithful praise. This verse reminds David, reminds us that there is a future hope. 
in the midst of our distress. Look, it looks like the world's falling apart. It looks like it's dying. And it is. It's decaying. It's going to come to an end. But my feet, no, my feet are stable. My feet are anchored. I'm going to even walk in the land of the living with this God without fear, without distress. And he's saying, in the meantime, I know this, the God who promises I'll walk with him in the future, that God is walking with me in the present. He is with me in the midst of my distress. But I will be with him one day when there is no longer any distress. Last passage I want you to look at. Revelation 7. This is, I think, the hope of the psalmist. And I hope that this is your hope this morning. I pray that this this future promise of peace that we see here and God's good design for distress will will humble our hearts and produce joyful praise and comfort in us when we face distress and trials in the days ahead. Listen to the hope that we have to walk in the land of the living because of Christ. Verse nine. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Saints, this is the very God that inclines his ear to us in our time of distress, who is promised here to say one day, I'm going to take away the distress and you're going to walk with me in the presence of a life without sin. Verse 13. Then the one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and From where have they came? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he sits on the throne. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is who the psalmist is praising in the midst of his distress. this, This looks like a messed up world, but there's a world to come. Where all that is wrong will be made right. And the very one who will right all the wrongs is with me in the midst of my difficulty presently. To him I can incline my voice because he inclines his ear to me because of his son. Who inclined his life to this world to take my place and become my substitute. And promise me that I can walk with him in the land of the living. And that he himself will wipe away the sorrow and the tears of this sinful world one day. That's our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all praise and adoration and thanksgiving. For you have made a way for sinners to come into your presence. You have made a way for the weary and the the worn 
and the struggling saint to come to you without shame, without condemnation, and knowing that we can come to you because of Christ, that you now incline yourself to us. Lord, let us come to you more often, more swiftly, and let us take a step back when we face suffering and cry out to you immediately and humble ourselves before your might and your design for this difficulty. Lord, let us be your people who live differently in this world. Let us testify that we belong to a world to come where righteousness will reign. And in the meantime, let them know that the righteous one will reign over us and with us and protect us and sanctify us to be more like himself as we go through times of difficulty. I pray that you be glorified in that, that you be honored in Jesus' name. Amen.